You're listening to the Eagles Insider Podcast. Now here's your host, Chris McPherson. Hello, Eagles fans. I'm Chris McPherson, and welcome to another edition of the Eagles Insider Podcast. And I'm joined alongside, as always, by the illustrious Alex Smith. Illustrious. Illustrious. Like yes, Mac. indeed. How are you, C-Mac? Wonderful. I feel good about Sunday. Eagles host the Vikings, and I know everyone is down on the team after the back-to-back losses to Detroit and Washington, but coming back to the link where they thrashed the Steelers Mm -hmm. about a month ago, I don't know. Minnesota's coming off the bye. I just have a feeling that something magical is going to happen this Sunday. I'm I'm feeling good, and I will say that I was kind of in a malaise last week leading up to the Washington game where I felt so good about the Lions— and even I was trying to think of the scenarios where, oh, if this happens, they could lose. If that happens, they can lose. And I just was like, I just don't see it happening. I really didn't know what to think going to Washington just because the rivalry there has been a little weird the last couple of years. Yep. I don't know. I just woke up this morning. We're recording the Open for this on Wednesday. I feel good about Sunday. I felt very confident going into the Washington game. Okay. So I'm kind of taking a little bit of a step back this week and letting seeing how things unfold. But I really can't wait for the game on Sunday. The Eagles are 2-0 and at home this year. You mentioned it. And they really just destroyed Cleveland. They destroyed Pittsburgh. So let's see if that home crowd. I know the fans are a little bit, they're a little angry right now after two losses, but they still love this team. And I still think it's going to be a crazy environment for Sam Bradford's return on Sunday. Maybe it's our guest who's making me feel optimistic this week. Could be. Our guest this week on the Eagles Entire Podcast, safety slash special teams ace Chris Maragos, who the first question I actually wanted to ask him was related to the movie Invincible, because you could probably do a Vince Papali type movie about Maragos' story in terms of just how nothing has ever been given to Maragos. He was never the highly touted college recruit. He wasn't a draft pick. He worked for everything he's earned, and he became a second-day freedom signing of the Eagles a couple of years ago, and he has just been a perfect fit for the city, this organization. Yeah, and you mentioned when he was signed here as a free agent. At that point, no one in Philadelphia really knew who he was, didn't know anything about him, but I think if you look back at what he's done over the past couple of seasons here, he's really endeared himself to this fan base. They know what he could do. They know, they see how hard he works and how much passion and how much effort he puts into improving his game. And he's kind of endeared himself. You know, it's, it's that cliche blue-collar mentality, mm-hmm. but it applies here with Maragos and just a, a really good story as well. Overall, I just think from top to bottom, this is a, a real fun interview. So definitely sit back, enjoy this conversation with Chris Maragos. And then a little bit later, we'll be talking to his wife, Sarah, to get the wife's perspective. I know we had Kimberly Sturgis on the podcast last week mm-hmm. with Caleb. We're going to go a slightly different path with Sarah Maragos about what it's like on game day to watch your husband out there on the field. But first, our interview with Eagles safety and special teams demon, Chris Maragos. You know, ladies and gentlemen, when I found out who our guest was going to be for this week's edition of the Eagles Entire Podcast, I was pumped because he has one of the best backstories of anyone on the entire team. And if you are not inspired, if you're not motivated after listening to Safety Chris Maragos, you got to pinch yourself. There's something's wrong with you. All right. I'm just going to put all the onus on you, the listener out there. But Chris Maragos, safety extraordinaire, special teams demon, is our guest on this week's podcast. Chris, welcome. Probably the best introduction of all time for myself. <laughs> yeah, there you Appreciate go. That, See? that was really good. Yeah. That was something. <laughs> but your journey to the NFL is simply incredible. Mm-hmm. So I want to start from the beginning. For sure. Let's go to growing up in Racine, Wisconsin, yep. correct? Yeah. You grew up a huge fan of the Wisconsin Badgers. In yeah. fact, you went to their games. That was a yeah. family tradition Absolutely. growing up. 
growing up in the state of Wisconsin, it's Badger football. That's all there's there is Division One school, and then all the rest are Division Three. So everybody's a Badger fan, and you know that was really where I started to really see a template of what it looked like to play football. Smash mouth football, guys who are disciplined, and we would go up every Saturday and we would watch the games. My dad would take me. And he would kind of just paint the picture. And we'd go through all the pregame stuff. We'd go with the band. We'd really? go to all the game day routine stuff. And, and he would kind of just show me what it looked like and kind of just allowed me to dream as a kid. And that's really what kind of set the fire at me at a young age and kind of carried forward. So you grow up, go to high school. Mm-hmm. You actually transferred yeah. going into your senior year. That's right. Yep. What went into that decision? You know, for me, you know, I needed to put up a lot of big stats coming from the state of Wisconsin. It wasn't like all the recruiters were flooding in to recruit guys from the state. At that time, I was playing slot receiver, so and I knew I had to put up pretty big numbers. So that was really what kind of made the transition, and that was really the biggest move that I had to make my senior year, transferring Crosstown Rival Schools. It's the oldest rivalry in the state of Wisconsin. You know, the school that I was trying transferring to was a, a primarily a passing offense that really fit what I was going to do in the school that I was at before was really a run heavy offense and they actually had a guy named John Clay who was like a four or five star recruit Ohio State Wisconsin Penn State Michigan everybody was after him and so they were really going to feed him the ball so it was really kind of I hate to say it this way but a business decision you know at the age of in 17 yeah exactly so but it did what it needed to do and it was a good move how did you come to make that decision was that you was it your parents did you have coaches involved yeah what it, went into it was it? really my parents a couple of my buddies. I had a really good friends. My dad went to that high school. My mom was a teacher at that high school. All my best friends were at that high school that I was at before I transferred. So it was a tough decision. You know, a lot of people didn't like me for it. You know, obviously you've established a, a pretty good resume at a school and all that. And then to transfer just your senior year, it was kind of weird. You know, your senior year is supposed to be your fun year and you're exactly. without your buddies, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I knew what I wanted to do at a young age. Even going back to Pop Warner, it was, it was one of those things where I was coached really, really hard at a young age, and details were very important. We didn't lose a football game until I got to high school from starting playing in second grade to high school. So I knew at a very young age what I wanted to do, and in my mind, I knew how to accomplish it, and you know, I had to make those steps necessary. So you actually went to Horlick High School. That's when you transferred to, correct? Yep, that's right. You actually played your old school your senior year. Yeah, that's right, yep. How was that experience? It was tough. Again, it was like all my best friends, you know, those guys you grew up with playing in middle school and high school, all those kinds of things. You know, obviously you put a lot of hard work in together. I took a lot of verbal abuse from them and kind of one of those things where nobody really had expectations for me. And so they were saying, why, why would you transfer high schools at this stage of your career? I was more of a track guy in high school. So they were saying, you know, I might have a career in college and track, but I knew what I wanted to do it and I knew what I could do. It just took a little bit longer for everybody else to figure that out, but just had to have that inner confidence, I guess. Which year did you earn Gatorade Player of the Year on Yeah, my senior year. Yep. Mm-hmm. So it turned yep. out to be the turned right out, decision. Turned out good. Yeah, it turned out okay. <laughs> but at the same time, you still didn't get that D1 offer That's right. you were looking for. I had um, a couple 1AA offers, a bunch of Division II schools that were interested. Actually, Western Michigan, they were going to offer me a scholarship without saying it if I came on my visit there. Okay. Actually, I went to Illinois State the week before. It was right before signing day at the beginning of February. And kind of crazy how it worked out, sitting down with the head coach at Illinois State. And they're a 1AA school, so they break their scholarships up. And he said if I committed on the spot that I would get a full scholarship, 100%. And I said, well, I'm going to Western Michigan this next week at Division One school the Mac. 
I was pretty confident that they were going to offer me a scholarship. And so I declined and said, you know, I wanted to go check them out first. And That's tough. It, it was you, tough. what you wanted. You wanted sure. a scholarship. Absolutely. So. It was. And so I went to Western Michigan and right, right before I was getting set up, it was a Thursday, like three, four days later after I left Illinois State, Western called and said there was a non-qualifier guy named Kennard Banks from Illinois who had a scholarship there. And they actually offered that scholarship to him. And so I called, <laughs> called the other guy back and what, scholarship wasn't there for a full ride. Really? Anymore. Yep. So that's how it goes, I guess. Have you ever tracked to see what happened to guys like Kennard Banks? Yeah, you know, he was out of school in a couple of years. He had some bad grades. Really talented player, cornerback. A couple other guys, too. Yeah, you know, you stay up with those guys. Yeah. But it worked out good. Actually, EJ Biggers, who was here last year, we yep. played together at Western Michigan. Louis Delmas, a bunch of guys mm-hmm. like that. Greg Jennings. So I really was able to play with a lot of good guys at Western. So when did you make the transition from receiver to defensive back? That's when I got to the University of Wisconsin. Okay. So I was a walk-on at Western Michigan, transferred to the University of Wisconsin, sat out a year. Nobody on the team knew who I was outside of the head coach, Brett Bielema, who was a former walk-on. And every day I had to sit out that season and just waste a year of eligibility. And so it was one of those things where I was going against our defense every day just as an offensive player. And the defensive coaches liked me a lot. They saw I was aggressive and would run and block and hit and catch and all that stuff. And they said, hey, you know, we think you could really play defense. And at that point, I was a walk-on, and I said, let's do it. So I switched over, and, and that's how it kind of happened. So was the University of Wisconsin always kind of your goal, despite all the other things you had to go yeah. through to get there? Was that always kind of in the back of your mind as somewhere you wanted to end up? Absolutely. For me, you bleed Cardinal White growing up. And so for me, it was always a way to kind of, how could I get back to Wisconsin? Obviously not getting a walk-on spot out of high school, you know, that was unfortunate. But I knew that once I was getting ready to leave Western Michigan, it was one of those deals where, you know, if there was any way I could get back to play for Wisconsin, I'd like to do it. And kind of some crazy circumstances there, but it worked out. It worked out real good. So, Well, for those who haven't heard the story... yeah. Explain those circumstances which led you to getting to Wisconsin. Yeah, absolutely. So I was, I was told that Western Michigan, if I would contribute and be a starter, I'd be put on scholarship. And I was a, a starter and a contributor as a, as a retro freshman, and they lied to me. And, and I basically told the head coach, I said, hey, listen, my style of play, the way I play with my heart and my effort, there's no way that I can play that way for somebody that I don't trust that it basically is being unethical to me. And so he tried to offer me a scholarship when I was leaving out the door, and I actually turned it down. And I said, it's never been about the money. It's never been about the scholarship. It's about the respect factor. And so that was really important to me. And then how I got to Wisconsin. So I was going to transfer down divisions to Grand Valley State, a Division II national champion, like four times in a row. And I'd be able to play right away. My brother was actually Bucky Badger, the mascot. And um, it's, that's a whole story. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's a whole other story. That's, man. A, that's a, like a whole other podcast. Right it's crazy, man. I know. So he's Bucky the Badger, and he, and he knew uh, he knew the guy who's a star player on the team, who's a former walk-on from a really small town in Wisconsin, Luke Swan. And he hit him up and said, "Hey, listen, would you mind talking to my brother?" And so I Facebooked Luke Swan and sent him my film to his house. He liked it. He showed it to the quarterback of the team, Tyler Donovan. He liked it. They brought it up to Brett Bielema, who was a former walk-on at Iowa, so he had a thing for walk-ons. Next thing you know, here I am getting a call from Brett Bielema, and, and I'm at the University of Wisconsin. And in a way, it all goes back to Bucky the Badger. because Absolutely. No question. <laughs> Absolutely, man. That's, that's what it's all about right there. So as you're going through your senior season and the whole draft process is starting up for everyone, what's that time like for you? What yeah. were you hearing about you know, the possibilities of you playing at the NFL? Yeah, no, nothing. <laughs> I didn't hear anything. You know, For me, I was just trying to really solidify myself on the team and in the locker room and being a leader on the team, those types of things. I never really thought about the NFL probably until about the third or fourth game of my senior season. Some agents started calling me, all the scouts started coming around, they started talking to me, things like that. And I said, man, this might be a big time possibility. The big question marks were obviously, you know, am I big enough? Am I fast enough? You know, all those stipulations. Am I athletic enough? Those are all things that I felt like I was going to prove at my pro day once they could get some stopwatches on me. But up until that point, I just knew I had to make my film as good as I could and be accountable to my teammates, you know, and that was really what the driving force was is 
if I was playing well to play within our scheme and, and my teammates, all the other stuff would work itself out. And so that was really my focus and, you know, ended up panning out. So you weren't drafted, obviously. Right. Did the fact that you were a walk-on into Western Michigan and onto Wisconsin, mm-hmm. do you think that helped you mentally prepare for what lied ahead? Oh, yeah, because, I mean, it was just, okay, let's keep going. Some guys, it crushes them and they're mad because they didn't get drafted. Exactly. I, I looked at it as like, man, I had an opportunity to play. And that's really all I wanted. And there were so many situations or times or people that were taking the game away from me so where I couldn't play that. I looked at it and said, somebody's giving me an opportunity to play. And that's really all I felt in my mind and in my heart. That's all I needed was an opportunity to play. And I'd showcase the rest of it. I'd have the desire and the passion and the work ethic to go do it. I just needed the opportunity to put myself out there. And so that was really kind of one of the biggest things for me is as I was moving forward, I looked at it and I said, man, I can go out here and prove what I need to do and, and have enough time to do it. And so I was fortunate to get enough plays in the games and practice and had some really great coaches that were able to help me out and really give me an opportunity to play and kind of work itself out. So why did you choose San Francisco yes. coming out of the draft? So it was between them and the Cowboys. Really? Yeah. Okay. So oh, good choice. Good choice. Yeah. Yes. Know, right? yeah, exactly. Well, there's more teams, but it kind of really became down to those two man, it's it's really kind of crazy. So not to go too in-depth, but our player development director at Wisconsin was you now... It's a podcast. You can, I know, right? You can, All right, you, cool. All right, let's do it, man. man. All right, yeah. I like it. It's smooth, man. So there's a guy named Bill Nays who was our basically the right-hand man to Brett Bielema at Wisconsin. Okay. The year that I sat out at Wisconsin when I transferred, basically knew I wasn't going to play, but I'd come to work every day and just go hard and every day in practice, just do the best that I could. And, and he remembered that. He went on to the 49ers, and now he was the right-hand man to Mike Singletary there. And so he was really the one that said, hey, listen, man, you got to get this guy out here, as crazy as that is. And that was really one of the big, big factors on me getting out there. You know, and obviously with Mike Singletary, the style that he played with, the type of mentality he has. They want winners. I mean, they want now. winners. They want, yeah, I, I want winners, man. You know, he'd rather play with 10 guys at 11 than aren't all in, right? <laughs> but I knew that I'd get a fair shake out there. And when I talked to them, they said, we're going to give you every opportunity. They were going to go into training camp with six safeties. And they said they were going to keep five. And so that was really kind of where I was like, all right, I can do that. So I knew I was going to get the reps I needed to get. And that's really what kind of sealed the deal. So how much did the coaching change in San Francisco impact you? Oh, it was huge. When Harbaugh came in, Singletary was relieved of his duties. Harbaugh came in, and at that point, we all knew he was bringing all of his own guys in. And then it was just a waiting game. Went through training camp, knew we were going to get released, got released. And, you know, I actually had a pretty good rookie year. But the reality of it was he was going to bring his own guys in. It was just pretty clear. So it didn't really matter what I did. And But it was pretty clear from the start. And, you know, for me, just kind of my conviction as a, as a person as, and is in my character, whether I was on the scout team, which I was all training camp, I was just going to do the best I could prepare myself and be the best team that I could be for the organization for whatever time I'm there. And when that time ends, then we'll move on to the next opportunity. So I just tried to stay ready. And really how I got to Seattle then was really kind of interesting. There's a guy by the name of Jeff Albrick. He played for the 49ers for 10 years. Really good player. He was now the assistant special teams coach in Seattle. So I get released at the end of training camp. Jeff Albrick was now the assistant special teams coach in Seattle. Seattle had given up two touchdowns on special teams the first two weeks or something. The year that was my rookie year in San Francisco, he was always watching film of his buddies, you know, all the guys that he played with still. And he remembered watching me on film from my rookie year. So when they were in Seattle were having some troubles on special teams, Pete Carroll actually came to the special teams coach and the assistant special teams coach and said, you can each bring in one guy to work out and we'll sign one of them. And I was Jeff Albrick's pick to bring in to work out. So you've gone from walk-on at Western Michigan to winning the Super Bowl with the Seahawks. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like? Heading into the year, going through OTAs, training camp, I'll be honest, I remember telling my wife, Sarah, I said, there's probably no way we don't win the Super Bowl this year. Our team was that loaded. 
the cohesiveness of our team was really good that year. You know it then? I've been on enough teams at that point to know we had guys who were hungry, guys who were very cohesive. It was a brotherhood on the team. And we had a tremendous amount of talent, guys who had a lot of experience and really coming into their primes. But I think the most special thing about winning the Super Bowl was probably leading up to it. I mean, really the core of that whole team, we all came in together. Richard Sherman, Earl Thomas, Cam Chancellor, Brandon Browner, Russell Wilson, all those guys, we all came in pretty much the same year within each other. And so we really were able to kind of grow together. And by that third year, I mean, obviously you win a Super Bowl, that's exciting, but I think you're most proud of kind of the process that it took to kind of get to that point. So everybody looks at the Super Bowl championship, but seeing what it started with to how it kind of got built up was kind of really, really, really fun thing. After you win the Super Bowl, eventually you end up here in Philadelphia. Yeah. What was the decision like to end up coming here? Yeah, it was awesome, man. Philadelphia was one of those teams that I was always super intrigued by. You know, obviously, as a player, you hear about different organizations across the league, ones who have good ownership, ones who don't have good ownership, ones who have a great fan base, ones who don't. And this was really one of the teams that really stuck out really from the start, obviously, with Mr. Lurie and kind of his reputation across the NFL of just being an owner that gives each team what they need to win, who really wants to win, who's got a fire Mm -hmm. and a drive for that. And then obviously the fan base, you definitely hear about the fan base, (laughs) just how passionate they are. And I think that's really what kind of really drew me here. There was four teams interested right out the gate, and it really came down between Washington and here. Another um, NFC yeah, ride. Right. Yes. Right. Another good know, choice. Right. I'm just thinking, what if we had out, man. What if right. we had to hate Marigos? I'm just like picturing like, <laughs> you'd be like Cowboy Star, and I'm like, uh, it, you'd be like the oh, annoying man. guy running down the field. It's like, oh. oh, that guy in special teams always makes plays. Crazy, you'd, right? You'd be someone who's hated and despised here in Philly. <laughs> oh, man, shoot. But it worked out really good. You know, I really felt like the interest that I got here, obviously, with Coach Fipp being here, that was huge for me. We were actually together my rookie year in San Francisco. Gotcha, and okay. he was the assistant special teams coach. So I had really good familiarity with him and kind of what he was about. And the more I just kind of did my research and really kind of dove into Philadelphia, this is really where I wanted to be. I actually took less to come here and be a part of this and the best decision I ever made. So you brought the family here and you ingrained yourself with the city. Yeah. You know, there are guys who live in the suburbs, Jersey, but you're right in the heart of the city and yeah. you've made your home here. Absolutely. You know, for us, I'm a big believer in you grow where you're planted. And this is where we are. This is where we chose to be. And as long as I'm here, I'm going to invest my whole heart, soul, everything that I have into this. And if and ever something happens where I go somewhere else, you know, then you just continue to do that. And so for me, it's kind of one of those things where you just try to be faithful with where you're at and, and make the biggest impact that you can, whether it's on the organization, on the guys, on the fan base, wherever it is that you're around, you know, you pour everything into it and do everything you can to make a place great. So you've gone from a guy who had to fight his way to a college program to fighting your way on NFL rosters. Yep. Now you're kind of that veteran that other guys look up to. I know we've talked to a lot of players. Trey Burton in particular is one guy who always mentions you, Jalen Watkins, a lot of other guys. Do you embrace being that guy that that players look up to now? Oh, absolutely. You know, I just have so many different experiences, whether it be from college or the NFL, so many different things that I feel like I can give those guys those types of things and hopefully give them the experience without them having to actually go through those types of things. And so for me, you know, I just look at it as how can I help make our team, whether it's on special teams, defense, our whole team, this organization, how can I make it the best place possible? And taking whatever situations, whatever experiences that I have and pouring out as much as I can into those guys and really trying to make them good as they can and and really make their game as, as good as it can be. So that's really what it's about, man. But the teammates that I get to be with, these guys are awesome. They want to learn. They're approachable. Guys work hard. It's just a really great group, man. We just have great cohesiveness here. And you guys can see it out on the field. I mean, that's why we started the way we started this year, because we have such a great locker room.
Now, I know your brother is a pastor. Yeah, correct. absolutely. Yep. I know religion is a big part of your life. Yeah. How integral is it in the locker room? Yeah, oh man, it's big, man. I think the biggest thing is, is I was never religious kind of growing up. That was like the last thing I wanted to be. I was like, really? man, oh man. I, Even with your brother being a pastor? That's, oh yeah. That wasn't? Uh, okay. Same thing with him too. Is The biggest thing was, it was like, dude, the last thing I want to be is that dude in the stale suit at church that's passing out programs. That's yep. just like, it just seems so boring to me because I was like, this is not really applicable to my life. And it was crazy when I was in high school, I was doing a lot of different things I shouldn't have been doing. I was really trying to find satisfaction in all the different things the world had, whether it be football, athletics, getting a scholarship, drugs, whatever it might be. I was trying to find satisfaction in those things and they'd fulfill me for a little bit, but they'd fade away. And that's really where I put Christ kind of in the center of my life. And that's when I, for the first time, got fulfilled. When was that? That that? was my sophomore year of high school. Of high school, okay. Yep, sophomore year of high school. And that's really when kind of things changed. And I was like, man, all these things like athletics or whether you look at money or fame, all these things can be used for great things if it's not your substance. If you look at it as a blessing rather than the things that really are supposed to be the substance of of who you are. So you view them way differently. And so that's kind of really was a big thing for me. But in our locker room, it's huge. I mean, you look at Carson, Trey Burton, Jordan Matthews, Malcolm Jenkins, myself, Jalen Watkins, Brandon Graham. I mean, I can just go down every list. Zach Ertz. I Mm -hmm. mean, all the guys, we have a brotherhood together. You know, we're sharpening each other. We're encouraging each other, whatever it might be. You know, I'm on group text with all these guys and we're talking all the time. You know, it's talking in the locker room. Yeah, just all the time. You know, it's kind of cool, man. And we just got a really great cohesiveness, a really great group of guys that are really doing some great things together. Are you guys members of like the same church or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So so we all, we, we do Bible studies together. Usually nights before the games, guys come over to my room. Ooh, it's, my room's packed, man. It's crazy. It? Like we'll get a bunch of guys in there, you know, hanging out. It's great. We're doing a couple study on Monday nights where we get wives and girlfriends to come really? together. Okay. I think we had almost 30 people last night. Really? Uh, yeah. So really cool to see the things that are going on off the field. And, you know, I think the best teams that I've been on are the ones that not only are great athletes or great players or are committed on the field, but the guys who are committed off the field too, to whatever it is their cause is. And guys who are invested in each other's lives and, and care for each other. Because when you look at the eye of the guy next to you, when things get hard, when things get tough, and you know that you're not going to quit, and you know that you're going to hold up your end of the bargain, that's where you have accountability. And that's where great things happen on the field is because there is such a bond between the two guys to know, hey, listen, man, I'm going to put all on the line for you, and we're going to get this done no matter what it takes. It's hard to let go as, as a player when you have a special interest in the guy that you're playing with next to, and, and you have a cohesiveness. I think it's huge. My last question for you is this, yeah. Chris. I know we've kept you here for a while. I appreciate no, the time very great, much. Man. So I like this stuff, man. What, it's fun. What's your message to whether it's maybe someone in high school who's in a similar yeah. situation, yeah. maybe it's, it's not even football related, to someone who's totally. trying to break through and, and reach that goal that they're trying to aspire to. What's your message in terms of whatever it is? It's a great question. What's your key to success, would you say? I would say this, man. There's a couple things. My dad always told me, whatever your mind can conceive and believe it can achieve. So I think there's so many things. You think about what a mindset, what that really means. It's putting your mind on something, but in order to put your mind on something, your heart has to be in it first. And so I think when you really put the substance or the the being of who you are into something, you can't be shaken. No matter what the external influences are that are changing all the time, if your heart and your mindset's in the right spot, you never change and you keep moving forward. So I would say that's a big one. I would say work ethic is one of the biggest things, but you can't misplace work ethic with success because you can work hard at it, whatever you want to work at, but you might just not have the talent. You might just might not have the opportunities to do whatever it is that you need to do. Work ethic only gives you an opportunity to be in a position to have success, you know, and then you got to capitalize on your, on your opportunities. So I would say work ethic, one of the best quotes I've ever heard is whether it's success or failure, you treat both imposters the same because 
whether it's success and failure, they're both imposters. They're both false, whatever you look at it. Because success tells you once you do something good enough, hey, you've made it, you're good, you're okay. Just relax a little bit. You'll be okay. And failure, what that tells you is, is you're not good enough. You can't make it. There's no way you'll ever be able to reach whatever it is that you want to reach. So both of them are imposters because they both deter you from your end goal, whether you're doing great and it's telling you just to relax and you're good to go, or you're doing bad and it's telling you you'll never make it. So the biggest thing is you got to treat both of those the same. And that's with hard work and details with whatever it is that you want to do. That's what I would tell somebody. I think I'm going to listen to this like every morning. Like when I get up, those first things, look in the mirror and be like, success and failure. Success and failure. Treat them the same, man. They're both imposters, man. They both deter you from where you want to go, man. Chris, it's been fun. Chris Maragos. Great. Thanks for having me, here on the Eagles Insider Podcast. Still in awe of that interview. That's my favorite part about these podcasts, Alex, is the fact that you just see a different side of the players. Mm -hmm. And after we recorded the one with Chris, he actually said, I think I've only done one other interview in my life where I've gone that deep into everything that I had to go through to get to this level. Mm -hmm. That's our interview with Chris Maragos. Now we're going to bring in the person who helped him get to where he is today, and that is his wife, Sarah. Again, we're going to touch on a lot of different things from how the religious faith has been such an integral part of their relationship to what is the game day experience like for the players' wives. What is Chris like the day after a game, we see them out there. They're like gladiators. They're battling for three hours, putting their bodies through all kinds of pain and torture to be able to try to get the victory. What's that next day like? You know, we just see them on Sunday and think, oh, they're perfectly fine afterwards. Mm-hmm. Guys have bumps and bruises and players react differently. So what is that next morning like? And how does the wife with two beautiful young children have to navigate that? So here's our interview with Chris Maragos's wife, Sarah. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us here on the podcast. How are you doing today? Good, good. Thank you so much for having me. Sarah, the first question I wanted to ask you is, what is it like from the wife's perspective watching a game unfold? Oh, wow. That's a great question, actually. So I feel like a lot of people love to hear that answer. You know, Chris has been now, now he's going into his seventh year. So I feel like it's changed. Like in the beginning, I feel like I was really nervous. And just with the uncertainty and with everything. But I think now, I don't know. I feel like I'm just excited and confident for him and just praying that he has a healthy game. But yeah, I think it's definitely you have anticipation for the game and what's going to happen. And But now I think it's turned into an excitement to watch him play and do something that he loves so much. At home games, do you sit with other wives? Do you sit with family members? Who Who do you interact with on game days at the stadium? Yeah, so usually a lot of us wives do sit together, and we all kind of request for our seats to be by each other so we can be near one another. But if I have family in town, they just kind of join us. But there's a good group of us that love to be able to be together on game page, get to share it with one another. How are the kids when they watch the games? Oh, man. So Micah, our son, our oldest, he's almost five, so he's really into it, and he is loving it. It's really cute. Chris (laughs) bought him all the little helmets of all the different teams. So every week he gets out the Eagles helmet and then the opponent helmet and he stacks them up and he puts it right on his little dresser. But he loves it. Micah is really having a great time. And now he's just really starting to learn the game of football. So asking me like, what is a sack? What just happened? (laughs) So it's fun that he's starting to understand that a little better. But our two and a half year old Mason has no idea, but he has fly, Eagles fly, down <laughs> so wow. that he loves it and but he doesn't fully understand the game but he definitely understands when it's time to sing fly go fly <laughs> that's the most important thing that's the biggest yeah. thing yeah exactly <laughs> i mean he was much younger then 
but what was the family reaction when he scored his touchdown for the Eagles a couple of seasons ago? Oh, gosh. So it was actually really sweet because Chris's nana was here. His nana is full-blooded Italian. So first off, she loves Philadelphia. And she was here, and we were so excited. And it was so cute because she was like, I'm his lucky charm. She's like, I need to come back to every game. So it was really exciting and really exciting for the boys, too. I'm curious what it was like for you from a family perspective of living in Seattle, living in the West Coast, and then Mm -hmm. Chris signs his deal here. You have to move across Mm -hmm. the country. Mm -hmm. From your perspective, what what was that like? Yeah. So, I mean, Chris was with the Niners and then with the Hawks. So he was out on the West Coast. It was fun. We kind of got to do that. And then when we moved to the East Coast, it was actually really exciting because we were like, wow, we've really never even been on the East Coast. We're from Wisconsin and Michigan small town. And so it was really exciting to kind of learn a totally different way of life. We have really enjoyed living in South Philly and just getting to know our neighbors and getting to know the city. But it is so different. The East Coast is very different than the West Coast, just the lifestyle of it. But it's been really fun for us. We've really enjoyed getting to live here. And I was just telling my mom today, I'm so thankful that my older son has grown up here because he's really learned some really wonderful things from being able to live here and meet so many different types of people. So it's been good. Can you take us back to when you first met Chris, you two both met in college. What do you recall about that first meeting? Now, this is at Western Michigan, is that correct? Yes. (laughs) Well, I recall Chris had a lot more hair. (laughs) 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 Wow. But I do recall that. (laughs) So Chris was 18 and I was 17. And we actually met our first day of college and we lived in the same dorms together. So Chris is going to get embarrassed that I shared this with you. But when I first met him, it was like a little dorm party and they were playing music. And I walked into the room and there's this guy just going crazy, dancing all over the place. And I'm like, who is that? I was just like, who is this guy? Chris has always been just an outgoing personality and really lovable and people just love to be around him. So that is one thing that I definitely remember the first time I met him. So what was it like when he transferred to Wisconsin? It was really a big deal because it was one of those weird things where it was like, should I stay in Michigan and go to a different school or should I transfer to Wisconsin? It always was a dream of his since he was a young little boy. His parents actually still have the seat that when he was in second grade, he started going to the Badger games and watching the Badgers play, and they still have those seats to this day. And so it was always a dream for him. And I remember me selfishly, I was like, oh, maybe you should stay in Michigan. But I remember some of his dear friends really counseled him. And they're like, hey, man, this is a once in a lifetime thing. Go for it and go big. And so, yeah, it was a really interesting transition. And it was just fun to watch Chris progress. I mean, when he first went there, they literally said, you'll be lucky, you know, if you, you know, are on special teams. And Chris was just happy to be there. It's just been really cool to watch him progress as a player. And honestly, it's been crazy to see Chris. I've never seen him peak. It seems like every year his game just keeps going up and keeps going up. So that's been really really fun to watch. Chris's road to the NFL isn't necessarily a typical one. I mean, he's really had to fight his way to get onto every team that he's really been a part of. What's it been like for you to be kind of that rock for him where, you know, through mm-hmm. good times, through bad times, you're kind of that person who's there for him. What's that like from your perspective? It's been a sweet road. It's been a road with a lot of highs and a lot of lows. 
but it's been awesome to be able to watch Chris. He never ceases to amaze me, just his mental capacity and the way that he can stay so focused and persevere through anything. So it's cool. Like when Chris is ever having that low time, it's just to remind him of the past and remind him how far he's come and to keep pushing forward. So for me, it's been really sweet to be able to walk with him through this and be able to see the ins and out of how far he's truly come. I mean, Chris just has such a great attitude, so much character and so much integrity. And so just to, yeah, it's always just an encouragement to never stop and keep pushing forward. It's like, you've already come so far, Mm -hmm. do not stop now. So yeah, that's been really fun for me to be able to experience and watch as Chris has gone on this journey. Sarah, Chris has talked a lot about his religious faith and how important that's been to him. Can you speak to how that's been an integral part of your relationship and how that's Mm -hmm. been a big component in keeping you two together and being able to withstand the bad times and enjoy the good times? That's a really good question. You know, I think that would be the key of even like what you were asking me about moving from San Francisco to Seattle to Philly and experience all these different things together. For us, we have been so centered because of our faith. We just truly believe that wherever the Lord has brought us, He has planted us, and it's not by accident. So it's like wherever He brings us, we know there's a purpose. And so when you can feel confident in that and when you can rest in that, you have peace together. And so for Chris and I, yeah, we definitely are rooted in the Lord. And so for that, with our marriage and with our kids, our kids always feel secure because we're secure in that. And so I think that that's one of the biggest things, especially for little kids. They're moving all over the place. They're meeting new people. And when they know that they have secure parents and and we share that with them, we're secure because our identity is in the Lord. So that's been a huge part of why we've been able to move so well together as a team, as a family. Sarah, how is Chris as a father with the two young boys? Oh, you know what? I actually was just running around with him. He was just in the backyard playing flag football with them. (laughs) So that's one thing that I can say about Chris is as hard and how physical and emotionally draining his job is, he comes home and he jumps right in. And it's really been sweet to watch him because I think he understands how crucial his kids' younger years are. And even though he may be so exhausted from football, he's not going to let those years go by without impacting them just being a great leader in our home. So Chris is an incredible dad, and his dad was an incredible dad to him. So I think it's really sweet to see the Marigos legacy in our home and the blessing. I tell his dad that all the time. I'm like, thank you for being such a good dad to Chris, because it's really paved a way for our family. Well, Sarah Marigos, thank you very much for joining us here to kind of give an insight into the perspective of what it's like to be the wife of an NFL player and just take us through the journey that you've shared with Chris over these years. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Great interview there from Sarah, and uh, greatly appreciate the players, wives, family members, high school coaches, the time they take out of their busy schedules, because I remember reaching out to Sarah to set up the interview, and it's like, I know you have the two boys. And we actually recorded her interview on Tuesday of this week. And I was like, well, at least I know Chris has done practice, so he should be home to to play with the kids. I thought we might hear them in the background at some point, but Chris must have been doing a good job yes. where they didn't interrupt the interview. So that's going to do it for this edition of the Eagles Insider Podcast. Make sure to check out Alex and I on game day. You'll be able to see Alex's reports from the field on our kickoff show presented by Exalta. I will be on 
alongside Joe DeCamera for the pregame and the halftime report. And then Ike Reese will join me for the postgame show presented by Rico. We greatly appreciate all the support. So no matter where you're listening and downloading, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, please leave a comment, leave a review, and certainly let us know. You can reach both of us on, on Twitter, our personal accounts very easily. You could reach us through the At Eagles account, which Alex does a phenomenal job running. Just let us know if you have a guest in mind you want to hear on a future podcast or any other feedback whatsoever. So that's going to do it for this edition of the Eagles Entire Podcast. We will be back next week.